everyone. Welcome back to Christian's Colloquy. I'm Christian, and I'm so glad that you could join us this week here, as you can see on your screens or based on the title of the podcast, however you're listening or watching. I am not alone. I have my friend Cameron with me. Hello, Cam. How are you doing? Doing well, doing well. Thanks for inviting me back. No, it's good to have you back. For those who don't know, this isn't Cameron's first time on. He's been on twice before. We were diving in deep into the Trinity doctrine of God. One of them was a debate review. So if you haven't seen those, check out in the description down below the links. They'll be there. It's good stuff. It's deep stuff, but it's well worth your time. Anyway, this is the long-awaited episode concluding our series here on congregationalism. And as advertised before, we have Cam, who's a Lutheran, and I believe a Lutheran in the LCMS, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. So there's a few different ones, just like there is for every denomination. We have our different churches and groups wherever we are geographically. But he's going to be talking about congregationalism, congregational polity in the context of Lutheranism. And he has a presentation for us. We'll let him share his thoughts, hear a bit about it from a Lutheran. It's not going to be me trying to make sense of it from my own viewpoint, but from a Lutheran himself, what they have going on. And then we'll have a brief discussion about it afterwards. So let's get the presentation going here. All right. So, so yeah, thanks for having me on again. Uh, you know, I, I think the title speaks for itself. It is a congregationalism in Lutheran theology. And I think from there, uh, you know, there's some immediate questions like what is congregationalism and what is Lutheran theology? So I won't define Lutheran theology. I mean, that's a hard thing to define. But, but the definition of congregationalism I give, the thesis that the local congregation or the ecclesia has the right to call and ordain ministers, she has this prerogative insofar as all of her true members are spiritual priests in Christ. It is they who principally possess the means of grace. As a corollary of this, we can say the assembly can and should hold their ministers accountable. They should exercise church discipline when they see fit to, and they should join with other congregations for the promotion of the gospel. The good news that Christ has conquered sin, death, and the devil for us. In short, the keys of the kingdom belong to the ecclesia. So, so more definitions. Uh, the ministry. The ministry is a hard thing to define, but I, I will say in a congregationalist setting, it is a proper accident that which flows from the essence of an assembly as a fruit thereof. The holy ministry is that function of the church whereby certain called and ordained servants preach the word and administer the means of grace on behalf of the body. The means of grace convict sinners uh, through the division of the word known as the law and relieve consciences through the gospel, both tangibly through the sacraments and visibly through the word. All believers have a vocation to preach the word in their occupations. In ancient Israel, it was commonplace for the father to teach their children the law. Uh, but not all believers have a valid call to do this outside of, of their specific God-given vocation. Some people have a, a specific call to be ministers. So from here, I think we can go into the history of congregationalism. Uh, the, the history, for, for background, the issue of congregationalism came up remarkably early in Luther's career. It had to, for Luther's definition of the church invited the question. In this, he followed his forerunner, Jan Hus, in returning to a more Augustinian and spiritual definition of the church. So yeah, what is the church and what is the spiritual definition of the church? 
Uh, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church of the creed is the invisible church, all those justified and sanctified by the triune God and Christ. It persists in all times and places, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of St. Peter, even unto the end of the age. As a result, local churches are called churches by a synecdoche, that is, predication from part to whole. So when I hold up this cup, I can say that I'm holding up water, even if I'm holding up a cup which contains water, because the principal part of the cup, the water, uh, is, is being referred to. Likewise, local churches are called churches insofar as they contain members of the true spiritual church. The local church has two primary marks, the proper administration of the signs or sacraments, and the preaching of the word, the, the two uncontroversial ordinances would be baptism and, and the Lord's Supper with maybe absolution being a third, and there's debate about that. And there's some confessional concerns as well. These two marks guarantee there will always be members of the spiritual and true church in the local congregation. God's word does not come, come back in vain. It is living and efficacious, penetrating the very hearts of man. The law convicts man of his sin and the gospel works faith in its joyful message. So, so from here, we can look at Luther's seven marks that he presents in his renowned on the churches and the council, or on the council and the church. So uh, I, I don't necessarily need to go into all these specifically, but, but the, the important ones that, that aren't mentioned, the, the, the last two I already mentioned, but the other ones like the preaching and exposition of the word of God is pretty obvious. The use and ordination of servants and ministers is also pretty important scripturally. It's there's three entire epistles that, that focus on this issue. Uh, suffering under the cross is less obvious, but I actually think this is mentioned a lot more than people think that it is. And confession and absolution, which the mutual admonishment and encouragement of the brethren is sort of a third mark that some Lutherans kind of mention. And I think that for Luther, this is included within, within the, the general priestly function that we all have of uh, preaching to our fellow brothers the law and, and giving them the absolution provided in the gospel. And there's, there's scriptural text to that effect, which I mentioned here. So, so yes, Luther the Congregationalist, that seems like a sort of a funny statement. Like, of course, Luther's not a Congregationalist, but it, it's a little more tricky than I think people realize, uh, as the next slide shows. So Luther published an early piece of Congregationalist literature in 1523. The book was entitled The Right and Power of a Christian Congregation or Community to Judge All Teaching. Leisnig, a small town in Germany, was won over by the Lutheran movement. They instituted a community chest. A community chest is sort of this, this chest that the community gets behind to uh, encourage craftsmen and workers uh, with financial contributions. And he did this in a way that didn't amount to the sort of purging your sins from almsgiving that he left behind with, you know, the medieval church's understanding of justification, which he obviously detested. The congregation of Leisnig deposed its two priests and appointed two evangelical ministers. Obviously, the congregation was hesitant to do this. Resultantly, they had to rethink their movement. Luther, however, supported their decision to remove their priest, and he wrote a treatise in their favor. Local congregation has the right to ordain ministers, and the local congregation can remove ministers as she sees fit. So, 
So from here on, I, I, I have a quote from Charles Krauth. He says, Luther shows that the ministry is nothing else than the ministry of the word. And since the word belongs to all, the congregation has the inherent right to have ministers of the word. If its ministers is not such a minister, that it has the right to dismiss him or to elect one who is. I, I guess I worded that wrong. If its minister is not such a minister, actually, no, I think that's just an ungrammatical sentence. <laughs> the call of the congregation is emphasized as that which makes a minister even apart from ordination. The minister thus elected to be refused ordination, his call is tantamount to ordination. So, so yeah, uh, we will look at Luther's specific argument here. Luther deals with the so-called Episcopalian text that a lot of Anglicans and others bring up as, as Timothy and Titus sort of amounting to proto-bishops by distinguishing between the declarative and constitutive functions of Timothy and Titus. The apostles have always ordained elders and that were selected by the congregation. Luther appeals to uh, Titus 1.7 and 1 Timothy 3.2, which are both text to the effect of a bishop must be blameless. Luther reasons that this information comes from the congregation and reveals, therefore, the congregation's role in ordination. And good order is prudentially necessary for synodical ministers, or in this case, temporal officers appointed by the apostles to have some involvement in ordination. But Luther maintains that in cases of necessity and good order clauses need to be followed as is the job of the town to put out a fire at all costs if such a concern ever emerges. Now, did, did Luther's vision ever really work out perfectly? No, actually, Leisnick uh, was not, it was, it was a sort of failed experiment, both on the case of the community chest and its congregationalism. And uh, as such, uh, Luther's vision of congregational autonomy was never reached. In fact, most Lutheran churches upheld some form of the episcopacy, and the 14th article of the Augsburg Confession allows for this understanding, albeit lacking the necessity of tactile succession. So here is the 14th article of the Augsburg Confession. Uh, and basically, I won't read this all out, but the idea is, is that they accept that the episcopacy emerged for good order, uh, but they, they don't think that it's a, well, Melanchthon in this case doesn't think that it's a necessity. Uh, God sometimes, you know, uh, works past good order clauses. Uh, he did this all the time in ancient Israel, for instance. He called prophets that had nothing to do with, you know, the, the uh, Levitical establishment or, you know, any of the other sort of uh, forms of, of unity that he provided. So, yeah, uh, the, the next slide uh, uh, kind of goes into the sort of understandings of ecclesiology that existed in the intervening period. Lutherans by and large followed what Melanchthon said here. Uh, there are even Scandinavian Lutheran churches that uh, presented tactile succession ordinations. Uh, that is to say that they, they taught that the episcopacy was carried on through the laying on of hands. Uh, by specific bishops appointed by the apostles. Johann Gerhard, something of a Lutheran St. Thomas Aquinas, defines the church as all those called by the gospel, whether externally by the words and signs without faith or internally by faith through the words and signs, the signs being, of course, the ordinances or sacraments. 
This definition lends itself more towards an older and more physical understanding of the church and as such a more tangible approach to Catholicity. Catholicity being, you know, the idea that the church is universal and has universal teachings. This physicality was not absent in Chemnitz, Melanchthon, or Luther, Chemnitz being another important Lutheran thinker who's uh, fairly popular in reform circles for some of his anti-Romanist works. Since the word is efficacious and clear, there will be proponents of the true evangelical doctrine in every age, but the message of the word is, is spiritual and grounded in the Holy Spirit. So as such, there is something different than what's going on in, in, in Gerhard's picture. Uh, so, so let's enter CFW Walther. It was not until CFW Walther and his role in the formation of Missouri Synod that this ideal was really challenged. Walther was a Lutheran pastor in America. He was under the patronage of a bishop, Bishop Martin Stefan. Unfortunately, Bishop Stefan, or Stephen, uh, did, did not hold up the blameless clause of the bishop uh, being accused of many sexual misconduct accusations uh, and uh, was expelled from their settlement in St. Louis, Missouri. Unsure of the state of the settlement, uh, the group re-explored the office of ministry. They concluded that the ministry exists through and for the congregation. Moreover, the congregation as priest can and should hold their pastors accountable through the word. The minister in turn can do the same, and his message ought to penetrate the hearts of the congregants. So the place of the minister is an important question for, for Walter and, uh, and the Missouri Synod in general. In fact, the early Missouri Synod concluded that the ministry exists through and for the congregation, as I said before. Moreover, congregations as priests can and should hold their pastors accountable through the word. Ministers are respected and submitted to in good order because as a minister, he is subject to a higher amount of vocational judgment, seeing as his speech is Christ's very words for that very congregation. He administers communion and baptizes, although the latter is by all accounts in Lutheranism an act that can be performed by any in the case of emergency. So let's look at the biblical warrant for this idea. Matthew 18 is a text that figures heavily in this discussion. In fact, a Christian is already had a long series on this subject in the uh, Joseph uh, Codden series. So, so I think that that's, uh, that's an important text for Lutherans as well. The keys were given immediately to the entire assembly alongside the apostles. Uh, and, and Luther reads the Peter's the Rock text several different ways throughout his career. But the way that uh, Walter and, and others cling to is this idea that, that uh, we are all little rocks, participatory rocks in Christ through our confession. And, and as such, uh, as living stones, we are capable of building up the, the, the church in our own specific ways, and that involves congregational autonomy. So as such, the congregation has the right to exercise its Christian liberty and removing ministers, as we see in Galatians 1 and probably Galatians 5. Uh, Cotton, I think, leverages some good arguments to that effect that that's something that's in the purview of Galatians 5. The congregation is told to exercise discipline in the case of the incestuous man and uh, in 1 Corinthians and several other places. So I'd say this idea is biblically motivated. So L Luther, Luther wrote on this matter, uh, on the matter of, of whether believers who are, who are called and, and baptized, whether they can exercise the ministry for themselves. And uh, 
yeah, while we're all priests, we don't have the right to do that without, you know, a, a, a physical calling by the congregation, a, a immediate calling, as it were. And uh, Luther, Luther says that, that we are all priests and we should, 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 should teach in our own way, but uh, it, it is not a, a good thing to do this uh, in good order with, with, without a, a call uh, from, from the congregation that you're serving. Uh, and that this is uh, simply a fact of, of prudence, I think. That, that you don't do this sort of thing. I would say it's both a fact of prudence and a divine mandate not to take up this, this calling without the sorts of uh, requirements that Paul mentions in the pastorals, for instance. So now let's look at the use of ministry. The ministry is not an invention of the congregation. I said it exists through and for the congregation, but it was instituted directly by God and Christ. It was directed directly instituted by God in Christ through the congregation, which he also directly instituted. Even though the ministry was instituted by God, it derives its right, authority, and power from the local congregation it was intended to serve. Ordination is a proper accident, that which flows from the essence of the congregation called by the gospel. So there is a bit of a controversy in Lutheran circles about this issue. In the LCMS, there is some dispute about the various factions over the issue of ecclesiology. Some follow Walther, and others are more inclined towards the position of uh, Johann uh, uh, I have never actually pronounced his name out loud, so uh, I was talking to Christian before this started about uh, whether I should look that up beforehand, but I, I just rolled with it. That, that sounded uh, good to me. Yeah, <laughs> uh, both, both of whom had important roles in the formation of the Lutheran Church in America. Lee stresses the independent character of holy ministry. It exists as an office apart from the congregation. This explains why the Lutheran fathers stressed the role of the presbytery, the presbytery in ordinations, even apart from the congregation. Uh, sometimes they'll even mention, you know, the godly magistrate's involvement in ordinations. Uh, that is not an idea that, that Walter or, or Lee actually endorsed because they were very skeptical about how the godly magistrate was functioning in Saxony. So uh, in the American context, this is largely irrelevant. Uh, Walter himself stresses the congregational element more than uh, Lohi does. Uh, so, so in substance, the two men actually do hold broadly similar positions. Both maintain that in cases of emergency, the congregation can select its own ministers without the concurrence of a clerical class. Both maintain the office of holy ministry as an institute of the triune God. The two men do not even defer on the ordinary character of ordination. Ordination will, in good order, involve ministers and even appoints the godly magistrate. Uh, the two don't completely detest the idea, but they also maintain that it has bad effects at points. But, but if they get behind the confession, they would say, by all means, this is a good thing. And, we could use that sort of help. So, so yeah, the, the shape of Lutheran congregationalism today is an interesting question. Uh, congregational autonomy is upheld by most of the major conservative Lutheran denominations. I mentioned the LCMS and Wells here. Uh, the ELCA is an exception, but that's a, that's a different story. The ELCA uh, has a sort of agreement with the Episcopal Church to involve uh, Episcopal orders within that, that 
within their framework such that you know they can have joint communion with each other but that's a probably goes beyond purview of uh, the confessional Lutheran model that I'm presenting here. So there's a synod which supports the local congregation and makes statements for the common good of the ministry. But the synod does not dispose persons or depose persons, that is the purview of the congregation. Congregations can and ought to convene for weighty decisions. I actually take the sort of thing that Clement of Rome is doing to when he's writing to Corinth is something of a pastoral, you know, synodical function, similar to that sort of idea. Uh, and I would say that when synods do this, it's more than just a local church writing to another local church. It's the whole body of local churches deciding something that uh, helps the promotion of the gospel. Uh, and I would say this is similar to what's going on in Acts 15, although obviously there's some difference because uh, there's apostles there and the apostolate no longer exists. Uh, but but yes, I, I agree with uh, Codman and, and Owen in this respect that congregational dynamics, uh, congregationalist dynamics best explain the transfer of the, from the plural elder model to the Episcopal model. That's uh, probably, you know, goes beyond the, the, uh, the, the discussion, the current discussion, but I, I would argue that. So differences in, in, in these notions, I, I guess I said in notion, <laughs> all Lutherans concur on this. There is an office of holy ministry. Nonetheless, the LCMS, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, and the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod, or Wells, or the WELS, uh, disagree on the extent of this office. For instance, is the Synod an assembly or ecclesia? Uh, those those gathered together for the sake of the gospel. The LCMS contends that only the local congregations, properly speaking, the church, a local body is a believer, administering the signs and preaching the gospel. Wells has a much more wide-ranging view of the church. I provide, you know, what Wells says on this issue. Uh, so they would say that synods are, in a certain sense, the church because they're something which flow from the correct use of the signs and the fact that there are believers present there. Uh, a bit of a difference. I don't think it's a major fellowship difference, although they would probably disagree with me on that. So, so yeah, that's, that's what I would say on that issue. And I would say more differences uh, emerge about the distinction about the place of women in ministry and the place of certain secondary functions uh, in, in the ministry. So, so whether staff teachers, Sunday school ministers, et cetera, are actually in some sense, you know, real public ministers or not. Uh, so, or, or whether they're things that derive, you know, their authority from, you know, the pastor. So, so the, the idea on Wells's part, they, they would be more in favor of viewing, you know, staff teachers, Sunday school ministers as sort of being branches of the holy ministry, is that the church has the right to administer the office of holy ministry in a way that accords with their specific circumstances. Uh, but for the sake of this discussion, I will avoid entering into that debate. It's, it's, it's a complicated one, and I think that there are a lot of good systematic treatises on, on the subject, but it would, it would take a while. So yeah, uh, 
from, from this point, uh, I think we can move on to an open format period. Uh, that's actually my, my next slide. Yeah. And yeah, I think with that, I, I, will, I will enter into a discussion with, with Christian here. Thank you very much, Cameron, for that presentation. That's a, a lot of history, a lot of theology, a lot of fantastic work. So again, thank you so much for presenting that. I think that adds a lot of color to the realities of congregationalism as they develop in different parts of the, the Christian world. So may, maybe a, a few, I guess, uh, summary statements on my part for discussion, but thinking about, it sounds like congregationalism in the Lutheran context, a lot of this discussion started with Luther himself and in that project initially, I can't remember the, what was the name of that town again? Lice. Leisberg yeah, or? yeah it's, uh, Leisnig. Leisnig. Yeah, it, it's confusing because like there's Leipzig you know yeah. <laughs> right right so Leisnig and so it sounds like that was really where congregationalism and Lutheranism started but since it didn't work out there it, it sort of fizzled and, and just went by the wayside and it, it would take a few centuries for it to be recovered so do, do you think think about that situation and what happened in Leisnig do you think Lutherans today are aware of that history, or is that something people talk about in your Lutheran circles? Yeah, no, it's, it's not something that, that's talked about. I'd say, by and large, uh, the sort of position I've laid out today is not necessarily the most popular one. Mm -hmm. I would say that there is actually this sort of movement more towards the model that Melanchthon presented, you know, in the apology. Right. But yeah, I, I'd say, by and large, uh, Charles Krauth, who actually it might be Henry Eister Jacobs, I, I, I attributed it to Krauth. Uh, when he's discussing the issue, he's he's essentially saying that, you know, this is a this is something that in good order, you know, can occur. Like like there is actual goodness to the episcopacy. Right. But he doesn't actually necessarily deny that the congregation has the right to assemble in a way that a accords with with uh with their specific goals right right so so yeah, yeah. i and, and that's what i i said earlier with with owen and, and cotton in this case is that uh i actually think that that having sort of sort of uh, episcopal dynamics on the synodical level is actually a legitimate function of the congregation i think that that's a that's a good thing i think in christian prudence we should try to incorporate you know, elements of the historical Christian church into our approach, but mm. we have to do that in a way that accords with the biblical data. Right. So, so maybe let, let's think a bit more about the, I guess, the biblical and theological side and maybe our articulation. So I know when, as a Baptist, I approach congregationalism, a lot of what you were saying sounded super familiar, going to the same passages in scripture, similar examples. But uh, I noticed that when it came to perhaps not buzzwords, but the, the terminology where as a Baptist, I'll speak about membership a lot more. I'll speak about independency a lot more. And that's very much from the, I guess, the English Puritan world. But I noticed for you a big part of the explanation and the, the I guess, the conceptualization in Luther, Lutheranism ties back into general principles where word and sacrament are two very big themes in Lutheranism and, of course, other traditions. But I think Lutherans pick up on that language a lot more than we would. But uh, that tied into it seemed where the reason, I guess, the go-to place to sort of say, hey, congregations have 
rights and uh, instructions to ordain ministers and perhaps depose them if need be. It came from this concept of them all having a responsibility to be ministers of the word and tied into the the priesthood of believers. So may, maybe just unpacking that a little bit more, do you see that as all connected in a Lutheran ethos of word and sacrament? And is that what's at play here? Why you're going along those lines? Yeah, yeah. I mean, for for, for Walter specifically, I mean, the, the idea is, is that the means of grace belong principally to the spiritual priest, right? Mm. And on that account, there is this sort of a priori argument for congregationalism. Uh, but I also think there are, you know, these, these specific scriptural passages, Matthew 18 being one of them, which lend support to the congregationalist idea of, of church government. So I would say principally uh, Lutherans and Luther himself in this case would, would probably appeal to you know, these, these priesthood of all believers passages. Right. I would say secondarily, we would also appeal to the same sorts of passages that you appeal to, right? Mm. And and of course you also appeal to the priesthood of all believers. Right. But it's, it's a, I'd say that there's probably less of a strict sort of a regulative principle going on here. Mm. Yeah. And and that, that's why I'm sort of, there is more freedom on this issue. Right. And, and that, that's where I, what I'm sort of sort of detecting here where, and, and this gets into other issues, I'm sure. But uh, while we would draw, it seems like you and I personally, at least, would draw very similar conclusions. How we get there, we might put some things first and other things second, which does lead to, I, it, it looks like on this issue, I would have a, a lot more of a firmer hold on congregationalism and what exactly that looks like. While you certainly have your biblically based opinions and you're not just shooting at the hip here, but it seems like you wouldn't be as, I guess the, the hand wouldn't be as closed around some of these concepts and you, you'd be willing to, to flex a little bit more in certain directions as you see it is good and right kind of situation. So, right. and I, I think that that speaks to maybe just, of course, for Baptists, this was inherited from a, a very Puritan world born out of conflict with uh, a very in their eyes, I think, historically speaking, a very hard to deal with state church situation and that sort of stuff. While for Lutherans, of course, very different development where it sounded like uh, for Luther was that Leisnig, uh, I believe, in just uh, that situation. But then later on with Walther, it was a, a very practical situation where you have a bishop not doing what they're supposed to be doing and then leading to a, a general re-examination where if it weren't for that bishop, and maybe that's a question, if that, that bishop in America didn't act up and wasn't uh, being accused of sexual misconduct, that I don't know if they were truly guilty of it, maybe that is or isn't known, but uh, do, you, do you think this would have come up if there wasn't that real case of, of abuse, or, or if uh, do you think people would have been okay with the status quo if that didn't come up in America? Yeah, yeah, I mean... I, I remember you used to be on this Facebook group with me called Orthodox Lutheran Fellowship, right? Yeah. Orthodox Lutheran Fellowship. And yeah, I mean, they, they, they pretty much said, without a doubt, you know, if, if he was not like a complete terrible person, mm-hmm. you know, we, we could have this glorious Lutheran episcopacy, you know, and they're all thrilled about it. Uh, right. Yeah, in my opinion, it probably wouldn't have came up in exactly the manner that it did. But if you read someone like Revere Franklin Wiedner, right, 
the, they're, they're perfectly aware that these issues are actually at play. And there is actually, to some extent, an open question about how exactly the, the ministry is supposed to function. Mm. And that's, that's kind of unclear within Lutheranism. I mean, you, you have statements to the effect of, of what the, the Augsburg Confession says, but it isn't actually specifically endorsing anything there. It's just saying, you know, uh, it's good to have, you know, regular ordinations. Uh, mm. we, we, we try to keep the model that we were given. We understand it was put in place for good reasons. And sorry, uh, yeah, and, and that's more or less the argument. Right. Uh, which is which is yes different different than the the you know more more uh, Baptist understanding. But I will say to some extent, I will say one of the reasons why I think congregationalism in the Lutheran setting took off is because they they were removed from you know the confines of the state church, right? Mm. And and similar to the Baptist scenario, they they actually you know they, they saw all sorts of bad effects with that. And so when they come to America and they have, you know, this, you know, freedom, freedom to exercise religion, things change for them. Right. Uh, and, and yeah, I'd say that this American, you know, democratic standpoint, uh, actually, I think provided lots of, lots of uh, good things for, you know, the, the Christian church, ironically, even if it also provided a bunch of damage. So, yeah. Right. Right. And that's something I have a, a discussion with a lot of people about congregationalism, where it, it's fantastic. And I really think this came out in your presentation. It's so amazing when it, congregationalism really calls on the church to be the church. It calls on every believer to truly be a priest of the Most High God and to take hold of the gifts of the Spirit they've been so graciously given and work together. But of course, when you invite cooperation and people to take responsibility and to be aware of their calling, like you, the, it, the people really got to do what they're supposed to do. Otherwise, it leads to some disastrous places. And that's, of course, a reality for, for every polity. Practically speaking, bishops are great if the bishops are great, but then you get a, you get a sour one and then that really could send a church. And we could talk about that another time with uh, where the mainline churches went. And you mentioned the, the ELCA and that sort of issues. But I, I think the, the point is clear that uh, uh, people can say that like this is an American innovation that led to all sorts of stuff. But overall, from your presentation, what I'm getting is there's a biblical theological argument. There are roots in Luther, which didn't take off, but they're clearly there in his writing and in the situation. And then it took uh, a, a little dramatic point in American Lutheran history where people re-explored, rediscovered, and developed from there. So maybe maybe just uh, transitioning and maybe just one or two more questions. But uh, first of all, thinking about those differences between the LCMS and WELS, I think I got that right, yeah, LCMS and Wells, but uh, uh, not, not so much their differences, but it seemed like a major flashpoint was uh, the office of the ministry and thinking about Baptistic church polity will that that's not a phrase that will that will come up thinking about it in that more general term we'll speak about having elders which are pastors and how those relate to the congregation we will then speak of deacons and how they relate to the congregation so may, maybe you just want to speak to that, that a little bit when you say like talk about the office of ministry are you talking about pastors or elders or, or what what exactly is going on there when it comes to I guess the the officers of the church. 
Yeah, I'd say principally, you know, the the minister is, you know, the the pastor mm-hmm. in, in the LCMS context. There there are, are there are also deacons, but I'd say there's a bit of an open question about how exactly deacon should function. I'd say generally the idea is that they principally draw their authority from from the pastor. And to some extent, I would say that that it's kind of a, a general Lutheran idea that that like the sort of understanding of, of uh, the presbytery and the, the uh, deaconage or the deaconry uh, is, you know, th- these these were ideas that that the apostles rolled with, but it is within Christian freedom to, you know, use different titles or, right. or have different offices, assuming that the function of these, these groups is still preserved, right? So it's not right. like, you know, you can have, have some you can't have something like a head pastor, right? Mm. And how exactly like rolling elders function in Lutheranism is kind of an open question too. I'd say that functionally most congregationalist uh, approaches do have something like rolling elders. Uh, Revere Franklin Wiedner, who's not LCMS, has a big issue with that. He's like, you know, this is just as innovative as as the episcopacy is, right? Mm. This sort of Presbyterian idea. And I'd say, yeah, that's that's a bit of an open question whether these should be called that. But I mean, functionally speaking, yes, all there is something like rolling elders, right? Uh, uh, yeah, so so I'd say that that's that's also kind of a mm-hmm. pointed pointed issue uh, within Wells. It's just uh, more unclear about where the lines drawn because I'd say there's more of an emphasis on the spiritual priesthood, mm-hmm. while in Lutheranism. I'd say the, the only reason in Wells, like why why women can't be ministers, for instance, is because you know uh, they are called not to have authority over men, right? Mm. Uh, I'd say it's a little more complicated in the LCMS. Gotcha. And, and that uh, I'll just say that that's always an interesting point when you and I or other uh, I'll hear from other Lutherans they'll describe polity and how that looks like I guess within the local congregation where it does seem like. As you were saying, there are a lot of open questions and a lot of conversations still being hammered out now where, uh, and this is something I talk about with another friend uh, a lot, where a, a big, uh, I guess, positive point that draws a lot of people to Lutheranism, especially confessional Lutheranism, are is the Book of Concord and the confessions and how much they lay out where you have the answers and you can look to them and point to scripture. Of course, I don't agree with the book of Concord. I'm not a Lutheran, but I understand the appeal, but it's interesting. It seems like on this issue where the book of Concord defines so much and has so many answers stated that on the issue of polity, there's such a, an open question and a lot of places for, for disagreement or for development or growth, however you want to phrase it. And that does seem to be partly rooted in the history and the back and forth there, but also Lutheran understanding of ministry itself, where a lot of these things, it seems like, are in, in, at least in Lutheran eyes, intended to be open questions where churches are invited to perhaps change terms or rearrange themselves as the, as the church sees fit or as it is deemed wise. Would you say that that's what's going on here, where it, it's not so much like the confessions forgot about polity, but it's, uh, it's an issue where they see room for, for change or development? Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say the LCMS would probably say that this is not an open question, given mm. you know, the LCMS's stance on open questions, which is very much against that. 
Right. But yeah, functionally speaking, I think it's a bit of an open question. Like the the, the two places in, in the Book of Concord that really treat this are, you know, the, the apology for the Augsburg Confession, also the Augsburg Confession, and the small called articles. Uh, I'd say that both of these lay out pretty bare minimum understandings mm -hmm. of the church. Right. And I'd say that that the that this sort of bare minimum understanding is actually compatible with congregationalism, but I don't think it's compatible with like, you know, a full or sort of Anglican understanding of the ministry, right? Right. Because I, I think that that it's within the congregation's freedom to, you know, lay out church structures in certain ways, right? Mm. But I, I'd say that if that weren't the case, uh, then, you know, actually I lost, lost track of what I was saying. Yeah. Uh, no, yeah, that, yeah. That, I think that that answers well. And I think that that really so I'll have to see hopefully I can link to those chapters of the Book of Concord you mentioned in the description, yeah. hopefully right to those chapters where it'll be interesting to see, I think, for people who are really interested what actually makes it in and how it's presented and how that does leave room for some disagreement. According to some, I, I know some Wells guys, they take the uh, Book of Concord pretty seriously, as I recall. So it, it'll be interesting to see how they or what they're reading and how they're interpreting and allowing for differences. But I, I think that that gives us a great idea of all the, not, not so much diversity, but just uh, the kind of thought that is taking place out there and the kinds of lines of discussion. Yeah, I'd say personally, it's sort of a good and necessary consequence argument from the confessions either mm, way. Right. Right. And that's a, that's a point of disagreement, what the good and necessary consequences are in this case. Right? Gotcha. Right. That, that's hard for any theological question. and Certainly hard for, you know, confessions, which we don't think are gasped directly inspired by God. <laughs> right. Right. And, and that, that's such, that's such a good point. And, and maybe we'll, we'll close it there. I think there's so much more we could say, but given how much we had said, I'm sure lots of people are already feeling overwhelmed with how much is going on. But uh, Cameron, thank you so much for speaking to these issues for us. And I'll, I'll just say, I think for everyone listening now, who's been journeying along with me on congregationalism, it's, it's, fa it's fascinating to hear how, like we, we think about congregationalism in our own little bubble, but for Lutherans, there's a whole nother world out there where, again, we could draw so many similar conclusions, have a, have a few disagreements or places where some will go further than others, but see how, and this is, of course, from our perspective, how God's truth and uh, the realities of the church can make it through through very different Reformation stories comparing England and Germany and both ending up uh, in America and seeing all the wonderful things and not so wonderful things that happened in the development as time went on. But anyway, Cameron, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, as always, when I have someone on the show, I want to leave a moment for them to make any final statement that they have, any recommendations or any closing thoughts. So do you have anything for us now? Yeah, yeah. I mean, as far as book recommendations go, the problem is, is that the vast majority of the books on Lutheran congregationalism that you can recommend are sort of... Uh, you know, they're, they're either not well argued or they're sections of other works, right? Mm -hmm. So I would, I'd recommend, you know, Pieper's Christian Dogmatics, obviously. Right. Uh, Walter's Church and Ministry is also good. And for a, a take that I'd say is more balanced and not strictly congregationalist, I would say uh, Revere Franklin Wiedner's uh, Ecclesiology is also 
really good. And I'd say it's really balanced in, in how it treats these issues. It has a different perspective than my own, but it's still, still good stuff. Mm, that, that's great to hear. And I'll, I'll make sure to reach out to you after to get links and the right names for that for the description. But anyway, that's it with Cameron for now. Thank you so much for joining us on Christian's Colloquy. I hope that everyone listening enjoyed, got something out of it. And feel free if you want to catch more of those names or book titles that aren't in the description. That's the great thing about YouTube and podcasts. You can listen and watch again. But uh, anyway, that's it for this week. And that's it for the Congregationalism series. So thank you for everyone for listening, watching. And I look forward to being with you here again next time on Christian's Colloquy. Take care. <laughs>